What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Richard Muirhead is the managing partner at Fabric Ventures. In this conversation, we discuss privacy by design, rational optimism, data sovereignty, the importance of encouraging experimentation, the key components of Web3, and modern monetary theory. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin? I've got a great way for you to try. You can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time. That's right. You don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro tasks that they present you that meet your interest, and then you're rewarded with these storm bolts. The bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the Storm token, Ethereum, or my favorite, Bitcoin. If you go and download the Storm Play app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try, and it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out Storm Play in the App Store today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I'm here with Richard uh, all the way in New York City during Blockchain Week. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to come do this. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a busy week rain. for everybody. So uh, if I can get people to uh, sneak off here, it's fantastic. Uh, we had Max on uh, from the Fabric team uh, already. So I, I love the fact that we can get uh, another perspective from your team. Uh, maybe let's just start with your background, right? So uh, you're not American. And, uh, and you've done a whole bunch of stuff kind of pre-crypto, so maybe just go over some of that. Yeah, thanks, no problem. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I'm not American. Um, the accent I, did not give it away. It did not give it away, although I like to say sometimes I have a bit of a mid-Pacific accent, wherever that come, comes from. <laughs> um, my, and I do have American family, so my stepmother actually is over in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I like to know I understand a little bit about Americans. Um, every but, every American other than New Mexico just said uh, Santa Fe is not America. But yeah, you're right. She grew up in Missouri. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the heart of uh, Tuscumbia, of, Missouri. That is definitely the heart of uh, America. There you go. And, um, but uh, but that happened later. My, my parents are Australian, uh, so they grew up in Adelaide, and then okay. they uh, after a few back and forth, they shipped us over to to the UK. Okay. And so I grew up uh, then after about seven in in, in London. Um, the weather was about as bad as it is today in New York. Um, always held it against them a little bit. And then um, at, I uh, uh, wanted to be an engineer, I guess. I went off and did engineering at, at Cambridge. Um, and that was a sort of very general course. Uh, thought kind of being involved in uh, fast cars would be fun. So I worked with Lotus and McLaren. and mm-hmm. uh, but, but figured out pretty quickly that um, maybe there was more uh, mileage in being in software in the mid-'90s. Um, actually kind of figured with my brother uh, that the closest we could get to being in rock and roll was to actually be uh, involved in the internet. My dad had been in the music business, so it kind of made sense in some some way. Um, And uh, so we built a a company, a telecom software company, um, whilst my brother was still at university, but a couple of years after I'd I'd come out of university. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
that was a telecom software company. Um, and then we uh, we went on and um, uh, built another. Com- I built another company uh, called uh, in, in the kind of data center automation space. But uh, uh, some of my kind of I guess formative experiences maybe even sort of predated that. Um, I was uh, I guess in the eighties. Um, you know we still had. Soviet Russia and in, in Europe, and I guess there's a bit of a common theme with the Europeans coming on the podcast here with Max. And it's true, of course, you know, Europe has experienced uh, different forms of extreme politics mm-hmm. over the last hundred years that has not been the case here in the US. And um, and so I actually had the chance to go over there in like uh, 87 and 88. Um, and, you know, I guess a confession is that I could see the logic of what a lot they were trying to achieve with mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the in a, address the inequality that can occur under capitalism, um, but you know, nonetheless, you could also see how that can go wrong in the extreme forms, um, and and I think that experience, uh, and in fact, I was actually went back in '95 um, and worked there for a little while and saw the aftermath of that kind of 70 year sort of economic experiment. Um, you know, that got me to thinking about you know how do we uh, combine, uh, you know, the principles of, of everybody's you know collective interest with uh, the motivational forces of uh, entrepreneurialism and the individual and the and the incentive of capitalism. And it feels like there's got to be a better way than the kind of two extremes that we've seen kind of hitherto. Um, kind and, of a hybrid. Yeah, kind of a hybrid. Uh, it was being you know pitched as uh, collective capitalism, which I think has been around for a couple of decades um, by some folks. Um, and, you know, I'd seen uh, in the first job I kind of had, I had one, should we say, proper job out, out of university, uh, working on, on uh, actually in a building society or a mutual. Um, you know, I saw the, the power that you could have from um, actually plowing your profits back into everybody's benefit, who's in all the stakeholders who might benefit, and actually even deploying loyalty schemes. Now, all of this is pretty is pretty similar to the concept of creating tokens and incentivizing stakeholders and so forth. So, you know, it was one in 2013 that my uh, good friend Steve Waterhouse over at Orchid uh, sort of reintroduced me to kind of to, to Bitcoin and crypto and the concepts of decentralized autonomous organizations. I mean, it's it was appropriately crazy mm-hmm. to think that this might actually all come together and work and could, you know, not just be a set of technologies, but something that would change, you know, the very substance of uh, society and, and how we how we operate, um, give more opportunity to individuals, but have produced something ultimately that is of a greater and more equal overall benefit mm-hmm. for all of us. And, and as you kind of got indoctrinated into it, uh, this idea of decentralization, um, but also the coordination of resources seems to have really kind of grabbed hold of you. And, and that was the, the thing that you said, hey, if this works, this could be incredibly powerful. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's, that's where I kind of, you know, ended up. I mean, my, my, my journey, you know, before that, I mean, we sort of, um, uh, as, as I kind of d- decided to kind of uh, that it was going to be a fun ride to get involved in the internet in the mid '90s. Uh, you know, I guess my first experience of doing that, which was pretty exciting, was to be, um, you know, plowing into a new field. Um, and, and and what you find is that in any new field, however young you might be, even if you're in your 20s, we were both in our early 20s. Uh, my brother and I, we set this company up. You uh, you have the in, the enthusiasm and the diligence and so forth to get ahead of the field pretty rapidly, um, uh, and and so we were involved in 
um, you know, that, that first, uh, you know, burgeoning of the kind of whole new IP network, uh, the religious wars going on between that. People forget how crazy it seemed that the IP network could be the one that became dominant. And then the work to try and upgrade it with protocols and make it all kind of, you know, operate for business. So, so we'd seen, I'd seen that, that wave. And look, it's been used, you know, many times as a kind of comparison, um, you know, in 2013, when I got sort of stuck into um, uh, Bitcoin and decentralization, and 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 also had been observing the should we say the the renaissance of of AI, and my second company, which sort of employed some components of AI, uh, built a super scalable kind of database and and you know modeled things ontologically and done semantically. Actually, we avoided calling it AI because it was so desperately out of fashion mm-hmm. at, the, at that point in time, but. You know, saw those components, saw how radical the concept of decentralization could could be, and 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 thought that this could be, uh, you know, something extremely, you know, give you some purpose, like some you know mission. And I think once you've been involved in something that's got some purpose and mission, you you, you become somewhat addicted to it. Um, uh, and the only mistake I've since uh, made since then is to not think long term about the mission and get distracted by sh- short term life events. Yeah, and to me, um, you know, one of the things. I've thought a lot about is this idea that uh, peer-to-peer networks, they've existed for a long time, but uh, there was a balance between being able to build a peer-to-peer network that works and then being able to build a peer-to-peer network that you can make money from, right? And the element of making money from providing that peer-to-peer network usually incorporated some level of centralization. So if you look at the Napsters of the world or something like that, and uh, we saw time and time again examples of, yes, there was a element of decentralization in these business models, but because it had that level of centralization, they could easily be attacked or, or kind of killed off or stopped. Um, and it was all because of the capitalism component, right? If somebody just said, hey, I want to have an open source decentralized platform or network, the tech was always there, right, mm-hmm. in some form or fashion. It was when we started to apply the business models. I think what we see today is the ability to continue to have these decentralized networks, but there's actually business models attached to it, right? You can do these things without having to have that point of failure through centralization. Although although a lot of people would still say that, yeah, we've at least got the design space mm-hmm. to, to, to build these new you know, token-driven, you know, business models for sure, but ones indeed that, that you know, don't have to have that rent-seeking at the at the heart of it. Um, and but I mean, you know, one thing we've been thinking a lot, quite a lot about at, at Fabric Ventures is 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 you know how hard it is to see exactly how. Um, these business models are going to evolve, mm-hmm. and if you take the long view, um, you realize that actually, of course, that was always the case with each of these, you know, ways of computing. But you know, definitely now more than ever, and just spent this last weekend at at, uh, at Ethereal, for example, you you can see um, for, first of all the talent, uh, secondly the growing optimism, but just there are so many different components of these new business models that people are kind of deploying, you know, mm-hmm. different uh, types of tokens, different, you know, mechanism design has become, you know, first, you know, right to the forefront of what any, uh, you know, s- sophisticated project is looking at. And there, and even beyond that, you know, working extremely hard on how do I run simulations of how this is gonna work when I roll it out? Um, because sometimes it's hard to, you know, roll back if you've, if you've done that. And uh, even then, of course, you get it to the point where you need to deploy it and hopefully kind of iterate it mm-hmm. um, over time. But I, you know, I think that's, uh, that opportunity is now there. Although I think we should, you know, be realistic that it is still hard to know exactly how those are going to fall into place. There's only a couple 
say Bitcoin, Ethereum, maybe MayCanal, where you could say, yeah, that, that feels like it's got like kind of fit between the token economics and, and the market opportunity, if you will. Yeah, well, and, and part of it is, um, I know that from your perspective, uh, this idea of experimentation, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's a ton of different teams that are trying all kinds of different business models, different technology stacks, um, different go-to-market strategies, et cetera. Uh, I think that we see, you know, eye to eye on this idea that like rather than uh, inhibit experimentation, uh, we should actually be encouraging it, right? And, and we should try to see how many different ways there are to do things uh, in the early stages because that's really where the innovation will come from. And then only once we see kind of all the options can we say, oh, a and you know option D are the two options that are going to work. Let's go put all the resources behind those two. You can't really do that until you see you know A through Z, right? For, for sure. I mean, this is the essence clearly of, of venture capital that that uh, you know you accept that there are going to be ex- many experiments and a couple of them are going to uh, land. But I mean, you know, you've got a, an environment here that it's like it's fit. It's totally fit for purpose for for generating ultimately some outlier successes. It's open. It's you know you've got this new innovative component of trustlessness or however you want to describe it trust minimization and you know and it's permissionless exactly but permissionless permissionless on a level uh, obviously that even goes up to getting you know governments and regulators and the rest of them concerned it wasn't it wasn't quite that level even mm-hmm. in the 90s with 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 the internet mm-hmm. and, and so how do you think about the balance between the experimentation and risk taking Right. And, and so what I mean by that is uh, as a venture capitalist or, or an investor, you want to encourage as much experimentation as possible. Right. Because that's ultimately what uncovers the innovation. At the same time, uh, we as investors are um, incentivized financially to see as much risk taking as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, from an entrepreneur standpoint, there's, I think, a much more balanced view. Right. In terms of they want to take calculated risks that uh, have a high probability of being successful uh, and if they are successful will have high payouts right in terms of the value creation do you think that those two things are uh, aligned or do you think that there's some disconnect there between like the risk profile and the experimentation uh, from an investor's perspective and an entrepreneur's yeah I mean it definitely became clear to me as I crossed the other side of the table uh, became it's hyper apparent that even though I thought I was someone who was like totally up for taking risk and, and, and building companies, uh, that actually, indeed, as an investor, you, you want the entrepreneur to take more risk on each individual you know, case uh, than perhaps they might even contemplate you know, being you know, comfortable with. And, and I think you know, one of the crucial things, I mean, though, if you think about you know, what it is that continues to give the U.S. an, an, an edge, um, and but I, I think you, Europe and indeed you know China is getting there. Is that uh, mindset about you know risk taking? You know d- definitely. Um, uh, you know education about you know how to you know think as an entrepreneur. Um, and 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 indeed though also the safety net. So if you've got to be ecosystem and you can build a company, and if it doesn't work out that it's a billion dollar success, you're going to get snapped up by somebody um, that, you know, does give you enough comfort to go for it. It gives you the kind of the safety net, the, you know, the, 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 the ropes to, to give you um, the confidence to go for it. So yes, there is, there is definitely a mismatch, but I, but I think, um, you know, you're only being disingenuous as an investor. If you're not, if you're not clear about that, that, you know, someone, I think it's Steve Blank who said like, if you connect, 
uh, once you take money from a venture capitalist, you're you're actually blending the venture capital business model with the business model of of your of your startup, and you need to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then you know, I think from an investor perspective, you're you're looking to not take almost any founder and co-founder risk. I mean, it, it's been said a million times, but judging the teams is so important. Um, and then depending on your stage, you work through you know technology and product and yep. market and the rest of it. Um, uh, but I think I sometimes mentally liken it to uh, abseiling. So like you want your whole team to kind of like uh, pile off the edge of the cliff and commit to what they're doing. And actually kind of counterintuitively, like with abseiling, if you, for the abseiling, if you kind of hold back, you end up with your face. I mean, you're, you're a military man. You must have done a couple of these things. Your face splattered against the cliff. But the more you commit to it, you know, actually, in a sense, you're kind of mastering the risks that you've got there. And I think that's how you want to encourage your entrepreneurs to think think of it. It is uh, pushing the pace, and many things in life actually leads to uh, much farther gains for yeah. sure. Um, all right, let's uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about privacy by default, right? I think that's something that um, you know you've got some unique ideas around in terms of. Uh, Maybe that hasn't been what companies have done to date um, in terms of uh, most of the business models we've seen in the centralized internet world is get as much data and attention as you can on your platform and then you can figure out tons of ways to monetize that data and attention because uh, there's very little privacy, right? I think that that is switching in a decentralized world. There's decentralization that leads to higher levels of security, privacy, uh, data sovereignty, et cetera. Um, how do you see privacy by design affecting business models mm. as we kind of move forward? Look, I, mean, I think where it's going to start from is that actually, um, you know, and there's an interesting article just recently from, from the A16Z crypto guys, you know, that data network effects don't exist. But the essence of that is just say, saying that actually, you know, to, to have an edge from data is super tough. Actually, it doesn't get easier to have that edge from data over time. It gets going to get tougher. And so the point about that is that even though we've seen this kind of massive increase in the quantity of data through, should we call it Web 2.0, this, this, you know, the Uber, you know, Lyft, Facebook, mobile, et cetera, sort of era, um, actually a huge amount of that is, is untapped. Um, and it's, un- it's untapped because, um, you know, or that might seem contradictory because we know a lot of it is being tapped by for the purposes of advertising, but there's actually way more data that is not being tapped because people are not comfortable sharing it. Um, and so, uh, and they need to share it on an ongoing basis. You know, sort of data has a, a half-life here yeah, or a super short half-life. It decays and then it's not as useful as it was. So if we really want to move to new business models, if we can, you know, encourage people to, uh, well, to, to come onto these new decentralized approaches, have self-sovereign, you know, nominal control, ownership and control of their data, and but be more comfortable then to to release them to for the purposes of, I mean, you know, medical purposes or the purposes of, of credit scoring or all of these different avenues, then um, that can do something really useful. The product and the end product can be better because of the use of that data. Now, I think that's easier said than done. When people talk about ownership of the data as being a solution in itself, but it but it ain't. I mean, because if you own all your data, I mean, you imagine how much of that there is. So what do you do now? Yeah. Um, well, and I guess really part of this is the data sovereignty is a crucial element, right? It's the, the idea that uh, you're flipping 
forget a business model, you're flipping a user experience on its head where it used to be just give us all the data and we as a company will figure out what to do with it. Now it's you keep all of your data as the user and then we are going to figure out reasons for you to permission us into the data. And in that situation, we're gonna have to be really, really smart about uh, providing more value to you than we're taking. Right, or, or you're not going to permission us. But just really smart about the UI UX. Like, how do you have that engagement with the user and them, them, them feel comfortable? They know what they are actually saying yes to, or, or even being comfortable. I know the product that I want, and therefore, because I know it's going to be done in a way that my privacy is not be compromised, I'm just going to allow the system to work out what data it needs access to and how, mm-hmm. and just like and run and run with it. But that's a whole sort of new setup that I think we're you know we're just at the beginning, we're scratching the surface on. Absolutely. How uh, how does data sovereignty actually become a reality? Like what like what are the the things that need to happen there? Well, I mean, look, again, we're scratching the surface because I think we haven't even got to the point of having decentralized ID nailed. Yeah, so I think you, you, you Do you think we need the decentralized ID before we get there? I think it's going to be attached to the individual. So, okay. so and, and, and I think, you know, someone's going to crack it. Uh, as, as ever, like, I mean, you never really see a runaway platform success without a killer app. So somebody's going to crack a bit of decentralized ID by delivering something. I don't know whether it's storage for photos or whether it's and sharing them, who knows, or maybe it's something on the DeFi space that certainly you know, seems to be uh, gathering steam. Um, but that app will then you know, support a decentralized identification that then once you've done that, you'll start, it will start to aggregate your kind of data footprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll be in a position to, to, to say, right, okay, I'd like to apply that now to another decentralized, you know, uh, it's almost like the uh, the shared support across multiple applications or platforms of you know, the equivalent of like a decentralized single sign-on, right, yeah. would then immediately cement that decentralized single sign-on as the default, and that would then kind of set the the, the you yeah. know avalanche off. Yeah, and it's it's the genius entrepreneurs that somehow can build something that is is going to be actually could be built out into a platform and be the kind of single sign-on, but somehow actually magically, you know, find the the thing that takes off in the short term. Can Facebook decentralize Facebook Connect and that become the uh, the go-to? I mean, the one word answer has got to be no. I Why mean, not? I mean, I so obviously there's lots of speculation and I, I certainly don't have the inside track. Maybe you do. Maybe you can give us the inside track. I know but, nothing. But, but uh, uh, and then the speculation is that, that you know, they create a stable coin. It's used for payments internally. You know, it shifts to the kind of WeChat model, and they take a, a like a tithe on on real transactions, perhaps through the messaging platform. Uh, I think they have a, a ton of hurdles with regulation, uh, uh, monopoly uh, commission. Let's not call that a, over here, but anti-competitive trust or something. Um, to you know, to, to deal with it before they can get to to that point, uh, they're going to have to do. You know, such a shift uh, in terms of their business model um, that uh, I think it's history would tell us that that's pretty hard to do. I mean, they did a great job, obviously, in you know, sort of flipping on a little pivot to get mobile mm-hmm. working for sure, and they've they've clearly experimented hard and pulled back when things have gone too far. Although in general, it's been amazing how the boundaries of privacy have been you know you know dented. But I think, well, yeah, my soothsaying would be say, to say that this is a little tricky. That's fine. Yeah. It, uh, I think that 
it is not unreasonable to think that it's hard, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> right? Uh, especially, you know, there's advantages to having 2 billion plus people use your service and having tens of billions of dollars in revenue, but there's also disadvantages as well, right? Yeah. Because you actually, uh, you've already kind of promised the user an experience and, and certain things. And so when you go and uh, w- whether it's intentional or unintentional, violate that, right? Or, or change that, uh, some people aren't going to like it. But they might, but I think the, I think just off the cuff, the, the the main objections are going to come from their shareholders. When you say like I'm going to rebuild the business model, and then they say well, we're going to have not going to have the growth that we were going to have, and then it might even come from the regulators if you or for the from from governments to say like you know uh, some people might say and have said in the press recently that he's got a, there's a pretty extraordinary amount of power, and you say well we're going to shift that from being that power base to now effectively somehow having a say over. Uh, this new form of decentralized ID that, I mean. See, to me, I think that Bezos and Amazon has way more power and way more um, potential negative impact than a Facebook, right? Because Facebook is with our personal data, right, in terms of, uh, yeah, they can take our photos, they can take when our birthday is, they can take our messages, right? I mean, there's there's sensitive information there, uh, but the idea that, I don't know what, Amazon's probably taking about 50% of all e-commerce revenue right now across the globe, Mm -hmm. right? Um, They're probably supporting, let's call it, benefit of the doubt, 30 to 50% of all cloud computing, right? In at least North America. Uh, I mean, these are massive numbers, right? And and so it's uh, when you start to look at one company doing that, um, it is uh, pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, he clearly has an empire. Um, uh, as soon as you have time to kind of launch rockets into space, you, you know, presume you probably um, should have the rest of your your situation analysed. But and and he's uh, obviously perhaps not, um, you know, the president of the US is uh, not his biggest fan, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. Um, and uh, but he know, doesn't like the Washington Post. He doesn't like the Washington Post, <laughs> but. But I like that's clearly the case. But that's just one example. You got Facebook, you got Amazon, you got all of these uh, tech titans who, you know, I think you know the the narrative is fairly clear uh, that have an access to a huge amount of data and mm-hmm. and they deliver a service. I mean, let's you know, I don't think we should um, ignore that. Um, but but ultimately, you know, we shouldn't stop innovating and see if there's a better way of of, of doing things and one where. Um, maybe we're less of the product and there's less of a monopoly and you know innovation creativity can thrive so speaking of a better way to do things uh before we started recording we were talking about um recessions and uh, monetary policy uh and in uh a recent piece ray dalio described this idea that uh, we've had kind of two monetary policy playbooks right so he labels one monetary policy one which is just the ability for us to cut interest rates uh the last two recessions he's uh the interest rates have been cut 500 basis points or more. Uh, we obviously are sitting at like 2.25, 2.5 now, so uh, unlikely that we can cut five. <laughs> um, but the second monetary policy playbook has been quantitative easing, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, since we are still engaged in that, that's also not going to be a very strong tool right now. Um, and so if we were to enter into a, a recessionary-type period, um, his belief is that we'll go hard on monetary or uh, modern monetary theory and this idea of you know just printing more money in, in unique ways how does this affect crypto right is, is this all important to crypto should we not be paying attention to it do you think it's just you know something that a bunch of academic 
intelligent people use to pass the time? Like, where, where, where are you out on all of this? Well, I mean, I would have said if, if, if you think about, uh, you know, how, why we're excited about, you know, this space in general, like, you know, the Web3 and decentralized apps and networks, uh, and then sort of tokenization of ownership as a sort of second thread. And then thirdly, this this concept of sound money. I'm, I must say probably sound money is the is, is third fiddle in what, you know, what we focus on. Um, but, um, you know, it makes intrinsic sense that, um, uh, you know, ma- making vast populations subject to uh, you know, decisions of, of uh, you know, centralized government as to how to handle these kind of, dip, you know, complicated situations doesn't, yep. you know, is is fraught with with danger um but i mean i i, I think um perhaps i think it's relevant clearly perhaps maybe the, the bigger issue though is i think one of um you know if i think i saw a stat the other day that that, that you know there's 20 percent of kind of middle-aged men within the u.s still don't have a don't currently have a full-time job um <laughs> and uh, that that you know people speculating I think f- uh, for example in the context of Andrew Yang's uh, proposed campaign yep. or campaign for presidency of you know about uh, it's fine if we automate all away all of the jobs and that you know we have a recession that is driven by uh, this you know lack of employment and so forth uh, that that people can just retrain that's not going to happen um, so I think perhaps a, a, a I don't think you need a print money to do it. Um, but you can, you know, redirect taxes to a universal basic income. I think uh, that has a simplicity and elegance, at least, that uh, uh, you know appeals to me. And then hopefully that will it cycles back through the uh, um, the economy because you you know, you know buying products and services. Uh, but also I think it goes back to this question of you know individualism and entrepreneurialism. It, it provides you know an opportunity for people to to uh, you know have social mobility. To build things, take risks, build things, create things, and move up from whatever situation there are into a, to a better one. That that sounds like a, a good use of, uh, of of government tax dollars. Yeah. So one of the things I've talked about previously uh, on the podcast is this idea that um, could we replace UBI as I think it's been proposed with uh, this idea of data sovereignty. Right. So if you think of uh, why do you get paid, right, you get paid for either your physical efforts. So you you physically create value. uh, You intellectually create value. Right. And and are paid for it. Uh, But there's a third bucket of the data you create. Right. Kind of the the, um, tertiary um, value that you create. And and in my mind, there's a world where if the technology works, if data sovereignty actually becomes real, if companies want to use the data and there's some permissioning you know, uh, mechanism that's put in place, uh, all of a sudden everything from your heart rate to how many steps you take to what ads you viewed on the street to who your friends are, I mean, all of this stuff, right? Uh, you could actually drive income by simply permissioning that to companies. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a uh, what I'll call like a digital basic income, right? So, so it's uh, it's not necessarily universal in that everyone gets it just for breathing, right? Um, you do have to opt in, you do have to permission data, you do have to create data, mm-hmm. right? Um, but in some form or fashion, that data is almost more valuable than, let's say, the physical labor that somebody mm-hmm. could provide, right? Mm-hmm. In some cases, depending mm-hmm. on what the data is. Uh, is there legs there? Is that just a, a kind of utopian 
pipe dream? Like, what, like what, what's your thoughts? I, th- I think there's, there's legs, and uh, we discussed some of this with the, the guys over at um, uh, Ocean Protocol, who are building kind of data marketplace and um, uh, on a decentralized basis. And um, but from what I understand, for those who've really d- dug into the the data, you know, at the moment it's just speculation that you could generate enough value to really you know cover that UBI. So the smart, the folks who are smart in this space are still telling me that that's a, a bit of a stretch. Uh, but maybe they're uh, being too constrained in their thinking, and that as things roll forward, that that will that will work out. But the, I think the other thing that's worth you know uh, considering though that if you stipulate that you've got to share that data in order to say receive UBI um, you know where does that stipulation stop you know what other um, uh, rules must you adhere to in order to be a good citizen and and to receive UBI because I think it opens up that opportunity and who's who sets those uh, rules I guess the uh, the government again um, but again I guess I mean it probably does go in in, in keeping with kind of collective capitalism uh, your you're allowing people to contribute as part of the collective and, and government hopefully is getting out of the way as much as possible, uh, but just setting the bare minimum set of, uh, of rules for you to be this good citizen and to, and to be supported uh, as part of this kind of new global village that we're maybe kind of moving towards. So this idea that um, technology can solve our problems Right is one that I think technologists really like, right? Because it's uh, it almost feels like we are in control of our own destiny when we can build technology that solve the problems. Uh, the issue or the challenge with that is sometimes the tech doesn't work. <laughs> uh, sometimes we build technology that works, but it doesn't solve the problem. And then the third and probably the most likely is there's technology that's built that could solve the problem, but we can't get people to use it. Right. And I think when I look at Web3, uh, that third bucket is like really top of mind of just it feels like there's a lot of good ideas, but nobody's using this stuff, right? In terms of like real like mass adoption. Mm. Uh, if you take out kind of the Bitcoin, the Ethereum, the the speculation of the, the liquid assets and that, um, are we in a period where, you know, if you look at the 98 to 2002 internet bubble, mm. all those ideas ended up getting built. It just happened 10 years later, right? We, we still had food delivery. We still had, you know, all these internet services, et cetera. So right ideas, probably just wrong time. It, are we falling into that trap with some of the Web3 stuff? Or, or do you think that, you know, we can kind of crack through this and, and the user experiences and the user interfaces get better and, and we can really start to get that mass adoption for some of these uh, these applications that are built? It'll It'll happen. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm uh, probably, I hope to be a rational optimist, mm-hmm. generally speaking, but I, I, it'll happen. But for sure, it's going to take a hell of a lot longer than uh, we're currently thinking. But there are very concrete reasons why, um, you know, that it's not panned out so far. I mean, a few few kind of d- there's thoughts. Number one, I think if you overfund uh, projects, I think I'm not sure you're doing them necessarily a great favor. I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, wisdom in Goldilocksing the kind of funding of, of, of projects. Scarcity, you know, is the sort of motherhood of all in, invention. You um, can suffocate a project just like you can starve it. To, absolutely, and and so I think that's been one thing that clearly we've we've witnessed. Um, so, you know, it's well discussed, of course, the issues with with scalability. So that's you know perhaps some one constraint. Although it's not like we see lots of apps uh, not succeeding because they haven't scaled yet. Um, usability and it's a focus on even go to market is one that's been a a problem. But uh, but I think this next in this next wave as security gets addressed, as sort of governance gets addressed. Um, um, and also the kind of language question gets addressed. I think you know the the rise of Wasm 
um, you know, as opening us up to a whole bunch of different, like, uh, well understood uh, languages that can be used to then build um, decentralized applications. That's going to be a big move. You know, uh, it's hard to script on Bitcoin. Solidity is a big step forward, but still, you know, pretty challenging. I think Wasm is going to uh, take us forward because at the end of the day, it, by definition, very few of the experiments will work. But if your experiments are tough to do, take a long time to come through to fruition, you know, you're not going to get to that one or two or three per hundred that's going to really kind of drive the success. As uh, somebody told me, the ERC-20 standard shook the world, right, yeah. in terms of uh, a single uh, a single thing that really kind of changed the way I think people think about building applications and think about building uh, technology in today's world. So it's pretty uh, pretty cool. I think it's a good, a good reference to, I think it was seven days that shook the world was reference to the Bolshevik revolution back in uh, So hopefully this can be a have a better outcome than that seven-year experiment. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before I finish up, I always do a rapid fire. Uh, most important company in crypto other than Fabric? <laughs> and we definitely wouldn't, wouldn't say that. But um, um, so I'm definitely with fans, and they are in our, our portfolio, fans of the guys over at, at Polkadot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think, you know, you've got a, a very strong team there, which has got experience of the things that went right and wrong historically within, you know, Ethereum, as they always do, uh, that have gone out and been sort of delivering on time, um, you know, trying to address, you know, what I think is a pretty critical issue around interoperability. So there's a lot of debate about, obviously, do you have one blockchain to rule them all or do you have, you know, many of them? Uh, I think, you know, we're seeing sort of a, a growing consensus perhaps that, Ethereum might be the kind of DeFi, you know, blockchain. Um, and personally speaking, what resonates for me in, in that context is that um, it, it, so having worked a lot at trying to in the product role within uh, companies as, as I've built them, uh, you know, for, for sort of 15 years of my career, um, the whole Jeffrey Moore concept of the whole product, all of the different things that are required to really make something work and get adoption, I think we, we sort of we're still very technologically sort of centric in how we think about this exciting you know, new wave. I think blockchains are going to require all of that. There's going to be the language and the developers and the preference and the brand and the services around them that will make them work for a particular sector, say like DeFi. So on that basis, we're going to have, we're going to be, there's going to be a tapestry of blockchains and they need to interoperate. And I think you know, Polkadot can help address you know, important parts of that and scalability to boot. So... Uh, these guys, I think, are onto something. Got it. Uh, what regulation would you change or improve if you could? <clears throat> I mean, I'm certainly not qualified to talk about regulation. I, I tend to think that these guys just need to kind of sort it out. Um, but I mean, I might say that I think that there's areas where more regulation can actually be kind of co-opted by crypto in a positive way. So to give you an example, I think that GDPR, which I, I think in, in Europe, the general data protection regulation in Europe, which obviously also applies to companies who are dealing with European you know, customers, they, they um, I, I think that almost in a, in a sense could be the beginning of a little bit of a, a third way. And I don't know whether you've uh, heard people talk about this, but, you know, uh, a kind of balance again between, uh, you know, the state caring about the rights of the individual, but yet allowing individuals they kind of their, their freedom with respect to data, you know, and something that's a little less uh, Wild West than the U.S. Uh, and maybe a little less controlled than, uh, than, than China. Um, so I think you can bake some of that into to, to crypto. So some, some more regulation around in that area could be good. Got it. Uh, most important book you've ever read? I'm not sure whether I'd describe it as um, 
most important. Um, uh, and you know, I love books like uh, *The Rational Optimist* by uh, 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 Matt Ridley and Jared Diamond's *The Third Chimpanzee*. Those for me are you know a, a sort of foundational ones. But um, for some reason, whenever I try and uh, think about this, I uh, come back to a book called *Stranger in the Stra- in a Strange Land* by Robert Heinlein. *Stranger in a Strange Land*. Yeah. Okay. What is that? Well, so it's science fiction. Uh, essentially, it's a re- retelling of the Jungle Book, where rather than having kind of Mowgli uh, get brought up by wolves, mm-hmm. um, this uh, human gets brought up by Martians, um, and c- comes back. So you believe rescue. in aliens. Um, 150%. <laughs> you fit in around here. <laughs> They're amongst us. Um, but, but What happens in the book? Well, so um, <clears throat> the mission goes a bit wrong, and uh, I think I read this when I was like 10, and um, they uh, he gets rescued, and he comes back to Earth when he's like 20. Um, and, okay. and really the lesson is that, that he then shakes everything up um, and, and, and forces people to question the, the whole way in which sort of society is constructed because he's like this is how the aliens live well he's just got this very he's he's, he's blessed with a slightly messianic kind of set of superpowers so that sort of helps um, helps him shake things up and also yep. he's inherited all the money from the kind of colonization of Mars and actually in some sense so the book is about Elon Musk the book is about Elon Musk but but, but he can Indeed, indeed. You know, maybe like you know, question everything, whether it be you know, use of drugs or the way government should work, or how we should think about religion or families mm-hmm. or power. You know, power and you know, the oil industry. Yeah, they question everything. So, uh, it doesn't tell you what to believe in the book, but it it, it tells you uh, perhaps you should question more things. Got it. That makes uh, makes sense. All right, aliens. One hundred fifty percent is a pretty big number. Uh, <laughs> why so confident? Hmm. So, I think that uh, you know it's quite interesting to try and get out of your human worldview um, and and understand that the same things we're trying to bring back to the way we interact with each other with these technologies and the de- of decentralization, the kind mm-hmm. of implicit trust you can have for in- individuals and, and machines across the, the network. That's a, that's a good thing in that context. But I think um, uh, the opposite is also true, that, that our understanding of the universe is massively constrained by that perspective. Um, and I just... There's just got to be something. There's got to be something broader and bigger, and and like you know, I think even being arrogant enough to think that you can even analyze it as a human doesn't make much sense to me. Would you rather go to the depths of the ocean or to space? Uh, Certainly, space. Definitely had the astronaut dream growing up. Um, I just think you know, it's beautiful, incredible perspective. At the end of the day. I don't know very many kids who were like, I want to be a submarine uh, and go to the depths of the ocean. Like, that wasn't really. a thing. I mean, even with the claustro, I mean, think about the claustrophobia element, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's sort of dark and no, it doesn't sound good. I mean, but space sound good. I can remember going to IMAX in uh, Florida when I was like 19 and that yeah. was, it was pretty, but I think. I'd love to go to like a volcano on the crust of the earth in the ocean. Uh, like, like so go where inside life the, began or kind of like those, those well, like go geothermal Well, inside things. the volcano that is at the bottom of the ocean. 
this is sound like a bon body sort of layer you're wanting to kind of construct yeah <laughs> I, I don't i don't know why just like for some reason the idea of you can't go inside a volcano on the crust of the earth mm. not in, at the bottom of the ocean right because they're active so you can look inside of them you can do that type of stuff but you can't actually like go down into the volcano uh if they are under the ocean you can though i think it'd be a good one day trip yeah, I'm thinking. You I have think to it, live there. I'm thinking of the space, though. Like that, you know, it gives you perspective, and I think perspective gives you some kind of happiness at the end of the day. All right, psychopath test. How long do you dunk Oreos in milk? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Oreos. I think I only eat Oreos in like ice cream. In ice cream? Yeah. Okay. No one said that. That's like frozen milk. Yeah. Right? I like. I like. I like. Um, I like having. Do you, do you know? If I said I wanted a flat white brevet, would you know what that was? No. Other oh. people in the room are shaking their heads. Yes, like like saying I'm an idiot for not knowing what that is. What is that? Well, that was taught me by my Missouri stepmother. It's a flat. Wait, say it again. Brevet. It's just with half and half, apparently. But in it kind of. No. Listen, people in Missouri they say wild Funny stuff. Things. They, eat, <laughs> I don't know. They like milk their own cows, and then <laughs> sorry from Missouri. We should tweet at me and tell me I'm a bad person for saying we, that. We should go back to that. There's some. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book about going back to kind of like making your own own bicycle and milking your own cows. Really? Yeah, What's that yeah. book called? Uh, it's it's the magazine was called The Idler. I think it was written by a guy called, a guy called Tom Hodgkinson. Okay. Uh, and it was it was what was it? How to be idle and how to be free. Those are the two books. Yeah. So uh, I'll let you ask me a question to finish up. But before I do that, uh, there's this wild theory that I have, uh, which is not fully fleshed out. So I caveat all of this with, uh, I don't even know if I believe this yet. (laughs) Um, But if you think of Bitcoin's deflationary structure and uh, disinflationary supply schedule, uh, it actually incentivizes people not to spend mm. Bitcoin, right? It's store value, hold it, mm-hmm. and it'll increase in value. Uh, and if Bitcoin became the global reserve currency, uh, would we see a world that returns back to minimalism? Because it would actually drastically increase the incentive to not buy all the bullshit that people buy and have all the material goods it. that we don't need. It's, I love it. That's I, ma- that, yeah, I think you should read How to Be Idle and How to Be Free. It's I, basically that. The idea of how to be idle and free sounds like exactly what I should it's, read. Yes, <laughs> but it comes down to not buying all the bullshit yeah. and not getting sucked into, unfortunately, what happens in the Facebook news feed half the time. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it, it's emotional People own a lot of knickknacks that they don't need. M- plastic knickknacks, even worse. Yeah. yeah, trust me, we could talk about this for days. Uh, all right, well, one question you have for me to uh, finish up. Yeah, so like I mean, I, I I mentioned earlier that I'd seen that you were, uh, had a military background. Haven't had a chance to discuss that with you. It's clearly, that super fascinating topic in itself. But you also managed to make the the leap from there to to business and and now to you know your, your own businesses. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of you know? I think this is a critical issue for a lot of people who've been in the military. Mm-hmm. And whilst I'm a kind of big believer in kind of small government mm-hmm. and nonviolence, mm-hmm. you know, military is kind of part of that detente you probably require. Yep. So how do we look after people when they're coming out of the military to help them be as least as successful as, as you have been in that transition? Because it doesn't always work out so well. Yeah, so I think, that, uh, the first of all, uh, coming out of, I think it was Vietnam, 
I want to script the data so somebody will correct me on the internet. Uh, but it's like 80% of Fortune 500 companies were run by military veterans mm-hmm. as CEO, mm-hmm. right? And some of that is misleading in the sense that just like everyone went, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So like the, there was just a high degree of military service. Um, but also there's a lot of parallels between running a business and being in the military, right? The discipline, the ability to um, drive, you know, the coordination of resources, the kind of um, mental fortitude, the uh, ability to uh, get people to want to follow you, right? All that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff, um, I I think plays into it. Uh, I I frankly think that um, there's two components to the transition back, right? So first of all, we don't have people who suffer from PTSD if we don't put them in positions to get PTSD, mm. which is like the whole idea of like, maybe we shouldn't be so reactive here. We should be much more proactive. Mm. Uh, if you are a, I believe now, 18 year old in the United States, you lived your entire life with us in major conflict with another country in a violent mm. manner. Uh, that's probably pretty stupid, mm. um, frankly. Uh, there's not very many soldiers that I know that deployed to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan that felt like we should still be there in the manner that we're there. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not to say that uh, we don't have a purpose in terms of there's bad dudes in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, um, th- there's uh, a reason why we have a military. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'd much rather be on offense than on defense. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but uh, there's this guy, uh, Marcus Luttrell, and uh, he gives a speech. Uh, so he is the soldier who survives in the movie The Lone Survivor. Mm-hmm. So four Navy SEALs in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. right through them die. Uh, and you know, these four guys are badasses. They killed 180 guys by themselves. So it's mm-hmm. four on like 200. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what he says is, what politicians need to understand is uh, your job is to be diplomatic. Your job is to negotiate. Your job is to keep good relations. Your job is to keep everyone happy with us. And your job is to do everything you possibly can not to send me somewhere. Because mm. mm. when you send me somewhere, mm. I'm going to fuck shit up. Mm. Right? And that's my job. Mm. But I'm the last resort. And so, so don't send me unless you don't want that to happen. Can I have a rapid follow-up question? Yeah. Then? So that on that basis, are you a believer in kind of uh, conscription or kind of universal service? Because it seems to me you're talking about key lessons that come from actually going there yourself or from really understanding that yeah that is a last resort i'm more uh so i think there's a lot of advantages that come out of service in general yeah um it doesn't have to be military service but i think uh i think a lot of people serve in many different ways right so like the difference between a u.s soldier who goes overseas right and is fighting a battle versus uh somebody who stands outside at christmas and rings a bell and raises money to help people at home you could argue, right, and, and I would argue, like, both of those jobs are important in their own ways. For sure. Um, and, and so I think that it's, uh, if you take a nationalistic view of the world, then service becomes a much broader definition. Um, what I think I'm more interested in is, like, what does service look like in a globalistic world? So all of a sudden, if you get out of the, like, us versus them, and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, we need to have a much better world in general and much better relations between humans, forget all these imaginary lines we drew. Uh, again, the definition of service changes. Um, but the other piece of it is uh, the best way to win a war is to never have one, mm. right? And the way to do that is actually to have a really strong military. Mm. And so uh, it's almost this weird paradox of like, 
you want to have the strongest military because it is actually the greatest deterrent to war. Uh, at the same time, you need to have leaders that are disciplined enough not to use the military that they have when they don't need to. Um, and I think my greatest fear is, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we used to have to send people there. I mean, you know, forget a couple hundred years ago, a couple decades ago, we literally had U.S. soldiers rushing the beach. And there was machine guns on the other side. Mm. They're just mowing people down. And frankly, it was uh, it was a lottery. Mm. Did you get shot or did you not? Right. And it was just wrong place, wrong time, right place, right time. Right. Um, that sucks. Mm. And so we've evolved now to through better technology. Uh, maybe we're not rushing the beach, right? And we can kind of you know we invaded Iraq, for example, and we did it in a way where there was much less casualties on a percentage basis, uh, and we did it very swiftly. Like we mm. we went from not in you know in the country to uh complete dominance of that country in i think like two weeks mm. that's a pretty impressive you know display of military might mm. uh there's a big question i think in my mind and i was in iraq should we have just left after that mm. right we could debate it all day long i don't know if there's a right answer or not but I think that that's like a, you know, one way to look at it. The other is uh, if you continue on as technology's gotten better and better, like maybe we don't even need to send as many soldiers. So today we're fighting wars where like we just spend specially trained soldiers, right? If you look at, you know, going to get Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, we sent like less than 20 soldiers, right? I think, I think it was like 18 soldiers or something. We send them into a country, they go and they take out one specific person and they leave, mm. right? Well, eventually that's just gonna be drones, which we're starting to see today. And then eventually it's going to be just cyber attacks. Is, is that better or worse? Maybe better on, on the side of the drones, <laughs> but it may, you know, it's kind of, you know, it, it'll rather kind of insulate people from the consequences of, of war, at least on, on the other side. Well, what happens when it is uh, not even necessarily lethal war, right? And what I mean by that is uh, what happens when, um, you know, terrorism, for example, is simply the ability to drive fear into a population, Right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one of the, you know, most interesting acts of terror that could happen that would have a profound effect. Imagine if somebody took down the electrical grid in Manhattan mm. for an hour, eh, got a lot of pissed off New Yorkers for two hours. People are annoyed for a day. Mm, getting a little kind of fuzzy. But, so we get three, four, five days down the road. You're going to have people killing each other. Sure. So, but why do we th think that hasn't happened? It, feel, if, it feels to me like uh, there are a lot of imaginative plots that people that don't get executed. And I, I think that there's probably a lot of people actually trying. It's just that uh, as technology has advanced, the offense and defense accelerate at very rapid rates in a somewhat balanced way, and so. As people get the technology to attack, people also get the ability and technology to defend, and so you get this balance. Um, but but ultimately, uh, you know, to bring this full circle back to uh, crypto and Bitcoin, um, you know, I'm on the record saying that uh, I think Bitcoin is the first weapon of the people that I've ever seen. When it falls in the hands of the wrong group, it can't be used against the people. Right, so if you think of a weapon, if I have a weapon today and uh, I own that weapon and it falls into the hands of you know an oppressive government, for example, they can turn and use it against me. They can turn and shoot me. Right, with Bitcoin, 
the way that governments actually control and oppress people in many countries, right? Not necessarily the U.S., but in many countries, is through inflation, through monetary policy, mm. through capital controls, etc. Yeah. And so, the second that you give the people a way to fight back against that in a nonviolent way, if that government just starts buying Bitcoin, didn't hurt the people, yeah. right? It actually may even help them because of the scarcity component of it, and it makes it more valuable. Right. And so it's it's a really interesting dynamic of, um, you know, does conflict in general, uh, maybe it changes. Right? I don't think conflict ever goes away. But when you start looking at governance and conflict in a world where um, you take away some of the tools. Right. You, know, you see Brad Sherman, the congressman in California, talking about yep. banning Bitcoin because it will disempower American foreign policy. Like that's he, a good thing. That guy gets it, right? <laughs> right? Like, like there's an element there of, you know, does this single asset actually create more equality? Not only in, in just the United States where you actually get less income inequality, but on a global basis, do you get less of the superpowers and you mm -hmm. get more kind of evenly distributed economic, you know, freedom? Maybe, right? Or maybe we're all just crazy and, and this is all theoretical and it just can't happen, right? But, I, I don't know. We've seen that yet. It's a bit theoretical now, but but I mean, it sounds like you're being in favor of that people's weapon being used to, you know, subvert the borders and, and trade restrictions. Um, and I, I, I thought I heard you also say that that um, you know if you have countries who are, are trading together, they're less likely actually to to go to war. Um, you know, those interconnections, uh, and, you know, tend to to in, that intermeshing tends to kind of preserve. Uh, security over the longer term look at most conflicts in the world it really boils down to a very small group of people who either from an egotistical standpoint uh a capitalistic standpoint or uh literally just psychological ineptitude decide that they want to do something and they go and they do it good or bad right and so we like to think that we live in very democratic countries around the world whether it's the United do. States, you know, making unilateral decisions to go to war, or it's other countries or even dictatorships, it's usually a very small group of people who make these decisions that have an, a profound impact on how the world gets shaped uh, and can cause and, and also solve conflict. And so I think that, uh, you know, if, if you start to take that power uh, and that decision making away from, you know, a select group of individuals, it's probably better off. A good thing. But I mean, I think if you take your broad definition of service, which I think I like and that makes a lot of sense, and you then make it something that it is universal, folks have to go through that at a certain you know age, for example, um, that feels like also it's going to encourage better decision-making. And maybe we can connect it back to one of the conditions for receiving universal basic income. I mean, it's part of being a good citizen that you have to, that's a component of society. He, he, you give here, up your data and you have to do your service. Here's a free idea I've never told anybody before. Uh, and I have no clue if anyone's ever thought of this. Uh, I would love if somebody's thought of this and I could just read and learn from somebody else. So I have to not think about it anymore. I think it would be really interesting to have a program where you have to have national service, but the service was to a country other than your own. Great. So you have to serve, to, you know, in Israel, for example, you have to be in the military for two years. What if you had to go and actually serve in a country other than the one that you were born and grew up in? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There's probably some impact there in terms of, yeah. you know, you, you have more empathy, right, for others. And so uh, I have no clue what the ramifications. I haven't thought about it enough. But, like, that's the type of stuff where I, think I just don't think we've, we've explored. I think it's a great idea. I mean, like, um, you know, in the 80s, I was kind of mentioning we were talking before, there was this concept that, you know, perhaps the Soviet Union was an evil thing. But uh, I just had that 
opportunity to go and spend time with people and you spend time with people and of course you know you understand them as humans and uh, and you see beyond that for sure uh, and there's a very clear statistics for example in the UK that um, the areas frankly that have got the fewest immigrants therefore people have actually only understand the concept of people you know coming into their country rather than actually having met the individuals are the ones who've voted most for Brexit which was mostly a you know anti-immigration kind of vote or we could debate that maybe <laughs> I'm not even so, yeah. going there <laughs> it's it's yeah we might have a better chance of getting to the other side than the current debate in in the UK but nonetheless Absolutely. let's not start it <laughs> <laughs> for sure now listen I, I really appreciate you uh, you coming on uh, it's great to have you here in uh, New York for blockchain week and uh, we'll have to do this again in the future great to be here thanks man are you curious about cryptocurrency and you don't know where to begin I've got a great way for you to try You can use Stormplay, a free and fun way to start earning in exchange for your time. That's right. You don't necessarily have to make a financial investment to begin. You can simply download, register, and then discover these micro tasks that they present you that meet your interest. And then you're rewarded with these Storm Bolts. The Bolts are then converted and can be withdrawn into your favorite cryptocurrency, including the Storm Token, Ethereum, or my favorite, Bitcoin. If you go and download the Stormplay app today, you can earn cryptocurrency rewards by playing new games and trying out cool new products. It's worth a try, and it's a great way to get started. Remember, go check out Stormplay in the App Store today. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off the Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off the Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off the Chain.